They say poker is a hard way to make an easy living. This is the podcast about people that make poker work for them. This is Mid-Stakes Living. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mid-Stakes Living, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com. Good to be back after a little bit of a break for the World Series of Poker. As always, my name is Derek, joined by my co-host, Matt Hunt. Matt, where, uh, where are you from today? Uh, today, I am coming still to you from Vegas, um, so I'm still, uh, I'm still around here for another few weeks, actually, just kind of uh, enjoying the atmosphere, taking a bit of a, a vacation after the, the World Series. I didn't actually really play anything at the World Series, but uh, I did play some stuff at the Venetian recently, so uh, still hanging out here in Vegas, and I guess you're back at, uh, back at home now, right? Yep, back in North Carolina, recovering from the summer in Vegas, uh-huh. and uh, it was it was a fun trip. It was nice to finally get to meet you in Absolutely, person. Absolutely, yeah, it was good right? to hang out. Yeah, we had uh, we had yeah. a nice little hangout in uh, in a place next to the Rio Wing. Yeah, that was yeah, that was a blast. And we we did for for those who were wondering, we did attempt to try to record some podcast or at least a <laughs> yeah. podcast while we were there. But what the, we quickly learned that when people when when poker players have days off, they don't want to do anything on their day off, <laughs> including record a podcast. Uh, so it, it was a little bit of a challenge, but it's okay. We're back now. We'll be on our regular schedule again. Uh, and on that note, um, I'm excited because uh, this is the first time that we've ever had a heads-up specialist on the show. Uh, so Adam Sabalewski, thank you very much for joining us, sir. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Very Good. cool. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, and you said you're, uh, you're calling in from Colorado, correct? Yeah, yeah I'm in a uh, suburb of Denver, essentially. Very cool, very right cool. The Rockies. And for people who uh, who are not familiar uh, with you or your story, maybe maybe talk a little bit about you know how you got into poker and how you sort of ended up focusing uh, on the area of heads up. Yeah, it's a little bit of a long story. So <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. We got time. Okay, we got so, time. Okay. Yeah. Seatbelts on. But uh, so I mean, I started out playing poker basically in university. Um, I'm just kind of dabbling. Um, I've always been into games. I've always been kind of a gamer. Um, I used to play like Magic the Gathering as a kid, um, even got pretty competitive when flew down to like Florida for like a big junior championship at one point. So I always really liked games and, um, you know, heard about poker and it's a fun game. So kind of got into it. I played a little bit first online for play chips. Then I found a live game um, in, uh, in my dorm. I started playing that and I found some more live games. Um, and then so mostly played sort of live cash for a while. Um, it was at the University of Chicago, so it's a very good school, so a lot of really smart people. So it was kind of fun. We all sort of learned poker together and sort of would talk about hands, analyze spots, and we were all pretty, um, you know, uh, pretty big egos, and, but also, you know, really love for learning and, and um, you know, a pretty high-level intelligence. So managed to figure out a lot of spots. Um, I still remember one day... Um, not even playing poker, just like on like some walk with my friends. And I remember thinking about like how pot odds actually worked. Cause I kept hearing these guys would talk about pot odds and, Oh, you got pot odds for hmm. this. And, you know, I never really knew what that meant. I mean, I kind of had an idea. Well, it means that, you know, if I'm investing a little bit to win a lot, well, I got pot odds, but like, I never really, it never really clicked to me what it meant in terms of like the pot and what sizing and, you know, what odds I'm actually getting laid. And so I remember I figured out, you know, how it works in terms of draws with, like, you know, how much you're investing versus how much you need to. Um, And I remember figuring this all out and, like, explaining it to my friends. And it was really funny because it completely changed our home game. And what it changed was bet sizing. People started using good bet sizes after that because they figured out that they were laying pot odds to other people. 
Um, and so right. they figured out a little bit better how big of a sizing they wanted to bet, you know, when a lot of people had draws. And they also figured out better how wide they could call, you know, with draws, you know, versus what kind of sizes. So it's it really interesting how it really transformed the game. Um, but anyways, uh, I played a lot live. And then um, as sort of uni, university sort of wound to close, I started playing more online because I didn't have anyone to play with. People are graduating. I graduated. And so I started moving online. And um, at that point, I was gotten better. So I was playing more for cash. Um, you know, playing real money online. Um, never did, didn't do great at the time, but I was dabbling by, um, didn't have to cash, didn't have to deposit almost at all. So I was pretty happy. Um, and, and I was kind of on an academic track. I'd been studying physics and math and was on track to go to grad school. And, and that's what I ended up doing. I went to grad school in physics and um, continued playing poker on the side, but it was really hard because there's so much work doing physics uh, grad school. Uh, but then I really realized I didn't really like physics. I wasn't really happy where I was. I was playing poker more because it was more interesting to me and more exciting. And uh, so, and so I ended up actually um, leaving the program, uh, physics program. I, I got a degree for, um, I got like a certificate of teaching from them because I, I ended up teaching classes for them and doing a lot of TAing because that was the part of physics cool. I liked was TA. Mm-hmm. I was like the weirdo grad student who like loved the TA sessions and didn't want to do any research or be in the class. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I would just do TAing a lot, and so I ended up getting like a teaching certificate after I taught um, a summer course of electricity and magnetism with calculus to wow. uh, to pre meds essentially to like medical students and like non physics non math majors, um, and that was really fun. I learned so much about like how people learn and what people what things people struggled with, what things people got, like how how their mind kind of processed stuff. Like watching things click in people is really cool you know, and suddenly things clicked and they knew how to do stuff. It was just such a cool feeling. Um, so, so I did that um, and kind of stayed with poker and actually switched over and did, did grad school in, um, in economics for a while just because I really was interested in game theory and poker and got one of the professors there interested in it. Um, but I was just so burned out after doing a year of, of physics grad school and not liking it. It was yeah. uh, it's very, very stressful and very tiring. So I kind of burned myself out and then I was like, well, I guess I'll just try poker um, I was living with my fiance at the time and she had a job. So we were like, okay, we can make it work. Um, I was living in a house that my parents owned, um, and kind of renting a spare room. So, so we were doing, you didn't have a lot of expenses. So it was like a good time to try. Um, I did okay. I was playing, that's when I sort of moved into heads up. I'd sort of been slowly moving to shorter handed formats. I always found myself being more of a lag player, more loose, more aggressive. So heads up was always, um, more interesting to me. You get to play so many hands and, uh, and so I'd switch over to like heads up turbos at the time and I was doing well with heads up turbos. Doing okay. I probably could have done better, but I had a lot of ego and would wore a lot of regs for no reason and you know, didn't like <laughs> game select at all and um, stuff like that and would play sessions tired, do all the kind of cardinal things that you know, that make you not make as much money, you know, playing right. sessions when you're tired, playing too long sessions, not game selecting, all that stuff. Like I was so bad at the macro side. I was good at playing, like I had good strategies. Um, although I didn't execute them still well, but, uh, but I was really bad at other stuff. So I didn't make as much money as I could have, but we were making money. I was making money. Um, and that was around when Black Friday happened. I actually had just switched over a couple months ago to Super Turbos, which I liked even more. They're even more mathy, and the short-handed format was really, sorry, short-stacked format was so good for me. Because um, it's nice and short-stacked. Edges are more made up of sort of, you know, solid strategies. Um, and it's hard to make big mistakes. And that's always something that's been a problem with, I know, my mental game or something is I, I just have this tendency to make big mistakes occasionally. And, and that hurts a lot less when you're short-stacked because they're not as bad. Right. 
Um, so I found it was a perfect format for me, and I was doing really well on full tilt. I'd moved up from like tens to thirties, was about to start playing fifties. My bankroll's all time high, and that's when Black Friday happened. And um, and so that's where we sort of my fiance and I were kind of put at a crossroads. What are we going to do? Um, we decided we didn't really like living in the U.S. anyways. We didn't really like what we were doing, and so we decided to gamble and say, well, you know, we can make it work. Um, you know, poker's been good. I can only do better from here. Uh, I'll just get better and work harder and and put in the time and effort and you know and I see all these guys who are not as smart as me making more money than me so clearly you know it must be <laughs> um, it's a very common I think tendency to see all these people around you and you're like oh I'm better than them I can make more money well there's a lot of hard work involved yeah and yeah. it's never that easy but we we took a gamble we moved to Poland because my parents are Polish. And we lived in Warsaw for a year. Um, I speak Polish, so we kind of got by. Um, my wife doesn't, but talked for her. At the time, wife. We, we got married and then moved. Actually, our honeymoon was, the, the, was a cruise from, uh, from New York City to Hamburg. And then we took a train from Warsaw. So our honeymoon was moving to Poland, which is pretty cool. Uh, on a Cunard cruise. And, uh, and so we, we, we lived in Poland, and I, I was grinding for a while and, and I was doing pretty well hypers again still never as good as I probably could have been like it was hypers are so soft that I, I could have been making so much money but I was you know reg warring and not planning my sessions very well and stuff like that but I was still putting in a lot of volume and you know at some point if you put enough volume in you're going to make money um, between getting better between just having enough volume where you know you're probably not losing um, you maybe aren't making as much money or have as high an EVR lies maybe you could but if you're putting in volume you're going to make money and so we're doing fine. I mean, our living expenses were really low, and um, you know we, we're still making a good amount of money. And uh, and that was when I, I was posting a lot on two plus two, and you know really as like a sort of exercise for myself, I'd go through all the all the new hyper hands on two plus two and in, in, in the HUSNG forum, and would comment on them and try to you know put in my opinion on every hand. And I made this like a little ritual for myself. You know, every morning I get up, check all the hypers hands, and post all of them. And at some point, I started getting people PMing me saying, hey, do you coach? Because uh, I really like all your responses. You're one of the few guys who says smart stuff in the forums. I'm like, well, I don't coach, but I certainly can. Um, <laughs> and, and that was really when I found, like, you know, found even more passion for poker and really found sort of myself. Because um, then suddenly all the studying I've been doing, all the, like, range building, all the little computing stuff. I'm a mathematician, so I like counting, you know, counting stuff up and computing EVs and stuff. So all that kind of you know, I could share it with others and they're paying me to share it with them. Awesome. Um, and that was really when I found that, you know, I really, really loved it. I mean, just like in, in um, physics, I really enjoy the TA. I mean, I really enjoyed coaching. And so I was like, sure, I'll coach. And, and I started coaching more and more guys. I started having more and more demand. Um, and, uh, and, it, and at some point I had a few like high stakes guys who asked me for coaching. I was working with some guys who were playing, you know, way above me. And it was so cool, you know, to be able to work with you know, high stakes guys and help them with stuff that I'm good at and, uh, you know, and feel like, you know, I'm, I'm at that same sort of level. And so I, I started doing a lot of coaching and um, I started working with a coaching staking program, HSNG.com staking coaching program. I started putting out videos um, and really started to work a lot on that side of, of poker. And, and ever since then, it's just been more and more coaching. I've just been moving more and more from grinding into coaching. And nowadays I've grind very little. Um, and I still study a ton. I still put mm. in, you know, the, the work off the tables. And I mean, I, I coach so much that I'm also, you know, constantly analyzing hands. I mean, I spend more time on poker than 
probably, I mean, I, I put in a massive amount of volume in terms of coaching. Um, and, and that's how I've sort of been able to stay ahead of the curve. Um, for the last like, couple of years, I've, I've been, you know, my, my sort of strategies and stuff have been the stuff that changes the metagame. I've been the one who's been advocating strategies that then become standard and been like that one step ahead. And it's just been because I've been working so hard and putting in so much time into models and, you know, and charts and, and strategies and thinking about strategies and thinking about how you can play against certain strategies and, and all that kind of stuff that, um, that's, you know, that can be really hard about poker um, or really fun, depending on, you know, what kind of person you are. Yeah. Uh, right, right. So, so ever since then, I, we moved from Warsaw. I moved to Aberdeen, Scotland. We lived in because we got bored of living in Polish-speaking land and wanted English again. So we lived in Aberdeen, <laughs> Scotland. And I actually did a math master's at the time. I wanted to have a little backup plan, and uh, I realized that really I liked math a lot more than physics. So I, I did a math master's, and that went really well. Um, it was really fun. It was a year-long program. I ended up doing a thesis and not theory, which is really cool. Analyzing knots. <laughs> it's so funny because people think about math and you know you, it's so often you think about numbers and you think about arithmetic and you think about calculus and really like a lot of abstract math has, has very little numbers involved and I was dealing with knots there were almost no numbers there's still computation of a kind but I would like compute like sets of numbers like I would compute like giant like structures that were like composed of copies of the integers like it'd be like I'd have copies of the integers in a matrix as really pretty advanced, but at the same time, really, really abstract, which I really like about it. You know, a lot more abstract from numbers. Um, and that abstraction makes it more general, more applicable to other stuff, more like, you know, general process that's involved. And I really like that. And one of the things I really like um, what I do with poker and, and my theory work is I try to focus a little bit more on the general stuff, focus more on building ranges, um, you know, constructing strategies, understanding how, you know, frequencies and strategies work. Um, and a little less on focusing on sort of like hand versus range stuff, less on like how do we play our hand perfectly versus this specific opponent. Well, I do some of that too. That's the same sure. kind of thing, but, mm-hmm. but a lot of sort of general stuff on how to build our range. Um, wow. And so, yeah, and then um, from there I moved after Aberdeen. We lived two years in Shetland, <laughs> which is an island chain wow. up in the North Sea. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you lived in the Shetland Islands. Wow, yeah. that, is, that is pretty, that's a big step. That's a yeah. long way from civilization. Yeah, it was awesome. It was such a cool place wow. to live. It was so safe. Uh, I still remember one of the funniest things we had to learn. Uh, when the first days, we, we moved into our, our flat, or it was a house, a little small house, and um, and we hear someone trying to open the door, and we're like freaked out. What the fuck's going on? You know, someone's trying to open our door, our front door. Yeah. Um, and we're like, we don't know. And then we kind of look out the window, and we see the mailman walking away, and we see him going to another house and just opening the door and putting a package in. Um, and so uh, from then on, we had to remember, you know, whenever we had a package coming, you have to leave your front door unlocked so that the postie could put the package right in your house. Um, uh, and, you know, whenever you go for a walk, be like, oh, do we have any packages coming? Oh, we got to leave the front door unlocked. <laughs> <laughs> the place is just crazy. so safe. I mean, it's a little different. Yeah. 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 They oh, had, to, they had like reminders up in places to like remind people not to leave their keys in the ignition because it used uh, to be a common <laughs> practice. You just leave the keys in the car. It's the most convenient place for them, right? And you never lose yeah. them. They're always right where you need them. Uh, but yeah, they had to put up reminders that, you know, Shetland's not quite as safe as it used to be and you shouldn't leave your keys in the car because um, people can take it joyriding or whatever. <laughs> but apparently that was one of the reasons they left the keys in the car was so that your neighbor could borrow the car if they need it. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. And I suppose like they, 
the funny thing is there that they don't have to worry about people actually stealing the cars because how are you going to get them off the island? Like, exactly. It has yeah. to be someone on that island if someone yep. stole it. So it's like, well, you're going to find <laughs> you pretty that's, yeah. ah, that's crazy. Yeah. That's <laughs> and, and so I'm actually really interested in, like, a, a lot of the stuff you talked about with your, your poker background is, is, a, is really, really similar to my own, you know, playing home games at college and, and sort of going, you know, going through a master's and continuing to play through there and everything. And, but it's, it's interesting to me that you come from a completely different academic background as far as like I, I studied French and transnational studies and you're definitely a maths and physics guy. So it's yeah. like obviously my my academic background getting into coaching was different to the kind of math orientated um, background that you're presumably coming from. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of curious as to how like how do you as a coach, how do you take that that deep deep level math stuff that you're used to on an academic level and make that palatable for people who maybe don't come from that background because as someone not from that background myself like sometimes that math can be a bit overwhelming at first you know yeah I mean it's a tough balance because I mean a lot of the the work that you, a lot of the benefit you get out of math is sort of like benefit you get on like you get results I mean mm -hmm. I think of maths are like a little black box you take right. some inputs like you take your, you know, your reads, you know, your range, maybe depending on how you're playing, your hand that you're interested. You get, you take these inputs. You know, you take the situation. You know, what, you know, whether you're looking to see better, check back, and then you have to evaluate your outputs, and you have to think about what's the EV of see betting, what's the EV of checking back, how do they compare, and math gives you that little black box to take inputs and get outputs from them, uh -huh. and so depending on the students, uh, you know, what their interest level is, what their plans are. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as just giving them the outputs and kind of giving them a sketch of why or, or you know, giving them an idea of how the black box, box works so that, you know, you can sort of understand, well, it works this way because we had certain types of inputs. And so with these types of inputs, we get these types of outputs. And so this is an example of this type of output. And you'll have other similar situations where you'll have similar kinds of outputs. Um, you know, sometimes it's as simple as just giving them the output, you know, sometimes they just want to hear what they're supposed to do here and they'll memorize it and, you know, use it next time. That's obviously not as useful, but for some players, that's all they want. And, you know, at some point as a coach, you want to give the players what they want, right? I mean, right. You're, they're paying for a service. So if they just want the, the results, that's fine. Um, and then some students are really interested in that black box and, you know, taking it apart and understanding how to build it, you know, how to put it together, how to make Excel spreadsheets that do it for you, how to study, you know, how to do this on their own so that they are right. not reliant on me so they can then go after a session and analyze hands on their own. Um, and so it's a lot of combination of that. Um, I try to make a lot of calculators for my students, like a lot of like Excel stuff so that they can do it on their own without having to put it together. Um, you know, their Excel spreadsheet will take the inputs and give some outputs, give them ideas. Um, so it's a lot of that. Um, I mean, a lot of times, too, there are sort of intuitive reasons for why the math works out the way it does. Like a lot of times I don't have to go through the actual numbers and I can say, well, in this spot, we want to look at, you know, we want to value, we want to see that here because we get a lot of value from getting called and we get value from folding out equity share. And, uh, and so we end up having a really clear value bet, you know, and, yeah. and so there's a lot of situations where you can kind of just kind of sketch the math, you know, yeah. the money comes from these situations, from this way, you know, this is why it's good. Um, and these are the kind of tendencies that you'd want to do this versus. Um, mm -hmm. So, so a lot of times it's that too. I mean, again, a lot of times the math is, again, this kind of more abstract notion, like math is just a way to get answers. And so a lot of times you don't really need 
that much math either. Like you can think about whether you, you know, want to bluff or not. Sometimes there's very simple criteria that you can give students. Like, um, you know, on the river, if your opponent never check raises bluffs, uh, it turns out that in order to value bet, you need more than 50% equity when called. And that's one way of putting it. But then you can even make it even simpler for students and say, you need to be called more often by weaker hands than yours than stronger hands. And boom, mm -hmm. you've got a really easy intuitive criteria for when to make value bets. And that's yeah. something that, you know, a student can wrap their head around. You know, I need to get called more often by worse hands than better hands. And that can break some fallacies in thinking because I'll often get, you know, students betting and they'll be like, well, why are you betting here? And he's like, well, I'm getting called by bottom pair. I'm like, well, sure you are, but you're also getting called by second pair, top pair, two pair, straight. <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, yeah. yes, you're getting called by worse hands 10% of the time, 20% of the time. That doesn't make it a value bet. You have to think about getting value from villain's range. And it's going to yeah. be better to check back and still, you know, win against those 20% of hands and not pay off the other 80%. Uh-huh. I actually find that that's something I come across quite a lot in MTT players as well, that there's, there's this kind of tendency for people to to really overly focus on one particular eventuality to the to the point where it's like that's kind of what they want to happen, so that's what they're focusing on, you know. They're, so they're they they're try, they're making a they're making a bet with like say third pair because like you say they're they're thinking, Oh, I'm I'm gonna get called by bottom pair, but they're not focusing on all the other different possibilities of like, well, you're gonna get check raised by these hands, you're gonna get called by these hands which are beating you and all of this stuff. So separating out that that um you know, those different factors and trying to boil it down to a, a, a sort of simple metric, like you say, for, for someone to understand like that, I think is probably one of the major benefits that yeah. some of that math stuff can be used for. Absolutely. Um, and I, I find it really interesting, too, that you're probably you probably have a pretty unique distinction uh, in poker in that you're you're the only player I can think of who has a piece of software named after them. So yeah. um, <laughs> I saw that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, oh, you have two. You have two nice. pieces. Wow. OK. Yeah, there's uh, copy five. Which, is, okay, which yes. came out like a few years ago. I mean, it's not I don't know, software. It's a HUD. It basically mm -hmm. is software because, um, I mean, it costs just as much as PT4. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I still tons of hours put into it. Um, so there's Coffee HUD, which is just a really advanced HUD for heads up, sit and goes. Mm -hmm. um, or heads up play in general. I guess there's a cash version. There's, there's a couple others. But it's made for heads up, sit and goes. So it, it does a lot of um, advanced stats that are really useful for heads up spots. And it sort of gets rid of stupid stats. There's some stats that are not applicable to heads up or don't work correctly heads up. And so we made sure to make all the stats work correctly and give max information. And then the newer program that um, was released recently is Coffee Calcs, mm -hmm. which is, um, again, a program designed mostly for heads up, but it's got a, a bunch of different, it's got three different parts that um, help you with sort of heads up math. Um, so it's got like some preflop, it's got a preflop part that does like preflop shove math. Um, so understanding how profitable 3-bet shoving is. Um, it's got a part that does post-flop stuff. Um, it's essentially, if you've heard of Flopzilla, it does a lot of the work of Flopzilla plus more, um, where it allows you to put in ranges and see how they hit flops and mm -hmm. see how different parts of ranges hit flops. And um, it lets you really like analyze hands and keep track of all the combos. It essentially does the combo math of post-flop okay. um, And then it has a third section just called a pre-flop strategy planner, which is essentially just an uh, elaborate um, way of keeping track of pre-flop ranges as charts. Um, mm -hmm. But the nice thing it does is it, it also keeps, it tells you all your frequencies. So you can put in a chart and it'll tell you how often it's folding to three bets, how often you're, you know, four betting, et cetera. So you get all your frequencies 
And you can very easily, um, Coffee Couch is set up to talk with all the different parts. So you can then copy paste parts of ranges or the whole range into other sections. So you can then copy your min raising range, paste it into your preflop math, and see how good three bet shoving is versus it. You know, how much can they three bet shove? Um, and so you can very easily, you know, make ranges within the software um, and have, and the software can really, really keep track of all that for you. Um, wow. So yeah, um, so it's a, it's a cool piece. Um, one of my friends programmed it and uh, I was involved a lot with the design and um, I use it for essentially everything now, um, other than my Excel sheets. <laughs> But yeah, sure. Yeah, really I actually, cool. I actually have the trial version in front of me right now, and it certainly seems like, um, it seems like the just looking at the post-flop equity part of it, which I think is the part that's, that's most intriguing to me, since it's yes. very useful for pretty much any heads-up hand, that, whether it incurs in a heads-up sit and go or not. Um, it, it certainly seems like that. Uh, like I can definitely see the similarities with Flopzilla there, um, yeah. but it, from what I can see here, obviously I, I have little experience with it, but. Uh, it seems like your your program's capable of doing range against range, which Flopzilla isn't. Is that right? Um, essentially, yeah. I mean, it lets you keep track of two different ranges, okay. uh, which is different from Flopzilla. And it lets mm -hmm. you sort of compare them more directly. It lets you graph, um, do an equity distribution graph, where you graph sort of one range against the other. Um, and, and it lets you just kind of keep track of both ranges throughout the hand. Um, and so there's different ways of using that. You can use it sort of the way it's intended, which is for hero, villain, and so you put, you know, yourself on a range, your opponent on a range. And again, that lets you look at your own range. But you can even use it for stuff. Uh, I, I use it a lot for study tools where I'll put two different ranges, like a checkback range and a flatting range, for instance, for an out-of-position player. Uh -huh. And I'll look at how board textures hit those ranges and see how good c-betting is. Because it turns uh -huh. out that, you know, c-betting can be different depending on how good, how, on your opponent's starting range. Um, if your opponent checks back a lot of low cards, you probably don't want to see that a lot on low card boards. Um, mm -hmm. On the other hand, if they flat a lot of mid medium cards, you probably don't want to see that a lot in min raise pots on medium card boards. Um, right. And so I would put in, you know, and this is a, a sort of drill I recommend to students, is you put in one range of each kind and just hammer up out a lot of flops and see how much fold equity you're getting on each flop in both situations. So yeah, there's mm -hmm. a lot of cool uses for that sort of second set of ranges. And, and that's one of the things... Um, that I, I wanted to make sure to incorporate in Coffee Calcs that wasn't in Flopzilla. Because I found in Flopzilla I would open up like multiple windows of it and start getting confused as to which window is what. And, um, and yeah. I really wanted to keep track of both at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's probably the main limitation that I've found. I, I mean, I've spent dozens, probably hundreds of hours at this point on Flopzilla. Yeah. And I, I think that the thing that I get most frustrated with is the fact that it's it's really good and uh, and, and quite useful for figuring out spots where you're you're talking with a student who's not quite yet on the level of thinking range versus range and you're just thinking well like you have a hand on the river and you need to figure out you know based on your opponent's range are they folding often enough for a bluff to be profitable here for example and it's really good for that stuff but when you start thinking on the level of like you know I want to figure out how many chips I make when I see that on this board you know with this range versus my opponent's range you know that that's like something that Flopzilla is a bit unable to do so it, that, it seems like your your stuff is kind of getting to that next level, really. So that mm -hmm. definitely seems like a useful piece of kit for anybody out there who's looking to uh, expand their sort of software library. Um, so, so what sort of other what other software do you find yourself using mostly in in, in coaching? Because certainly I, I use a lot, but I'm curious about what other coaches are out there are, are doing. Yeah, um, uh, Cardrunners EV is one that I have a lot of students that sometimes use, but I don't use. Um, okay. It's one of the super famous ones, and I pretty much don't use it at all. 
Um, I've used it a couple times, but I've found that a lot of the stuff either I can do in Coffee Calyx faster, um, or I can, or isn't very useful to me. <laughs> uh, like a lot of Card Runner's EV involves setting up really elaborate trees and then running simulations of what happens in those trees. Um, and I found that it's so sensitive to your inputs in terms of the situation, so sensitive in terms of how, you know, how many millions of, of trials you run on more complicated trees. It's so sensitive to so many things. It's so hard to get good info out of it. And so I usually just um, do like more simple Excel work in a sense that I found gives me more accurate data because I don't have to make so many crazy assumptions. I don't use Card Runner's EV a lot. Um, but what I do use, I use, uh, again, Coffee Calcs, um, PT4, obviously. Um, and then otherwise, not much else. I've, recently, there's a whole bunch of GTO um, solvers that have come on the market, and I've found myself using a ton of that. Um, there's, a, there's a few different ones. There's GTO Range Builder, which is fantastic. There's, um, there's PO Solver, which I really, really like and use a ton. And then there's, uh, there's like simple post-flop, which I think is also is just somewhere in between the two. Um, mm -hmm. But, but they're, they're fantastic, fantastic tools. Uh, and that's mostly it. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, occasionally I'll, I'll use some like really simple program just to get some like pre-flop equities. Like I'll go on a poker, propokertools.com and if I'm in a hurry just to do a quick like, you know, equity calculation. But that's... Mm -hmm. Pretty much it. Um, now for spin, I've been doing a lot of spin and go stuff recently, so I'm not just right. heads up anymore. I'm doing lots and lots of spin and go play, and for that I use Hold'em resources for some of the shelf math. Uh -huh. So, so I do use Hold'em resources for for, for shelf math and pretty much yeah. Hold'em hold resources. Pretty much all I use Camtasia. So I, yeah, I think um, it, it's certainly interesting to me that one of the probably one of the biggest um, sort of change ups in in coaching in the last sort of year or two or or in, just in general, poker theory has been the, the the fact that people are now much more conscious of the idea of uh, of GTO poker and and, and yes. what it means to play at equilibrium or to, to try to to strive to get somewhere near equilibrium in a certain situation. So um, I'm curious as to how you've kind of adapted your coaching over time to cater for the fact that people are now more interested in not just how do I exploit my opponent in this particular spot, but how do I try to play perfectly in this spot. So how how has that changed your approach to coaching? You know, I mean, one of the way, I mean, the major way, I've always kind of, I mean, I think that the GTO approach is always useful. Whether you want to play perfect, whether you want to exploit people, it's always good to know what GTO play looks like. And so really what's changed my coaching is that I have a much better now idea of what GTO looks like. Um, there's so many solvers, there's more stuff in the literature, there's so much more information about GTO play that... The biggest event, I mean, it's just been a, a clear advantage. I mean, I've just had a better reference point. I didn't have to, I don't have to guess as much. I don't have to right. speculate and use educated guesses. I can just plug stuff in and get an answer. Um, mm -hmm. And that's awesome. Um, and so what I generally use GTO for and what I strongly recommend to students is that GTO is the best sort of reference point you can ever think of. It's this like compass that I, I think of it as like a compass. If you understand what GTO looks like, you'll have a significantly easier time figuring out how your opponent's playing because you can compare it to GTO. You can compare right. their frequencies. You can compare their range construction. You can compare all that stuff. And so what it actually is, I find it's one of the best tools for exploiting people because you can mm -hmm. figure out how they're exploitable. You can figure right. out whether they're playing too wide or too tight. It's not always obvious if someone's playing too aggressive or not aggressive enough. 
if they're putting in too much money or too little, um, if they're calling too much or folding too much. It's not always easy to figure that out. And mm-hmm. GTO tells you that much, much more clearly. If you know what a GTO strategy looks like on a certain spot, then you know what your opponent's doing differently. Um, or you can also identify when someone is playing near GTO. And then you can adapt by trying to play near GTO yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really one of the most important things. I mean, it gives us so much insight into what solid strategies look like, what you know, solid approaches to rating construction look like. It gives you so much insight into what, what you should be doing or should not be doing um, in certain situations. Um, and, this, and so, again, I mostly use it for not for playing perfect, because uh, it's not perfect. Um, you're not making as much money as if you're exploiting your opponents. Um, right. But I use it for figuring out when, where you can exploit your opponents, to make sure that you're exploiting your opponent and you're not getting exploited yourself. Um, yeah. and, uh, and that's the most important thing. I mean, if you understand what GTO play looks like, then you'll avoid getting exploited because you'll know when people are playing in a way that's exploitive and you'll avoid getting exploited by that. And you'll also have more you know, tools to exploit your opponents and make even more money from them. Um, and so it's, it's, it's such a powerful reference point. And yeah. again, using it as a strategy, I think, is relatively poor. It's very hard to do correctly. It's easy to make mistakes. And it's not that profitable in many cases. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be slightly profitable, but not nearly as profitable as you know, more standard exploitive strategies. Um, and so it's not a great strategy on its own versus most players. Um, but it's really, really good for figuring out, for understanding better strategies in general. It's the best strat. It's the best like model of a strategy. It's the best like example strategy that you can ever use. If you're thinking about putting your opponent on a range, it's always a range you can put people on and get valuable information from. It, yeah, it, it's interesting to to hear from yourself, Adam, as someone with so much experience in heads up games, because obviously in heads up, you're in a situation where let's say you play a certain number of hands with somebody and you you think you have a decent number of a decent idea of uh, how that person's playing. Obviously, the next step for heads up is that you have to uh, identify the best way to exploit that strategy. However, in tournaments, it's almost a contrast where a lot of the time you're playing against complete randoms and you have no idea what their strategy is. So it's like you have to take that first step of figuring out the strategy to begin with. So how do you um, how do you I know you obviously have played a few tournaments. I think I've, I've seen some updates on your Twitter about playing at the World Series this summer. Um, so. So how do you, when you're playing a tournament, um, adapt that idea to playing against players who are complete unknowns and you have yeah. no idea what their, what their baseline strategy is? Yeah. Well, the truth is, uh, especially for heads-up sit-and-goes, the truth is you mostly play against unknown players. And uh-huh. they're mostly readless, actually. I mean, especially okay. if you're playing hypers, the games are like five minutes long. You're not often getting rematches. Sometimes you will, but not often. If you're playing against recreational players, usually playing them one or two games, and that's it. Um, it's really only versus regs that you get a ton of reads. Um, okay. And so a lot of, actually, a lot of playing against recreational players is actually playing against what are called in the heads-up world population tendencies. Right. So it's understanding what tendencies the average player has. And so if you can understand the average player's you know, leaks, um, what kind of places does the average player you know, play, play wrong from GTO, you can go into the match completely readless versus a random player and start out with a very exploitive strategy that exploits their tendencies. And as you play against them, you can put them, you can sort of push them into different parts of the population. So I think of reads as, you know, I start from population tendencies and then I use my reads to push 
those tendencies one way or another, in a sense. Right. So if I start getting reads that opponent's really aggressive or whatever, I'll start putting them in a different, like, subpopulation of players. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll start sort of getting more and more pinpointed reads. And that way, every hand I play is really useful. I mean, even if I get 10 hands on an opponent, I can usually get some reads as to how they play. Um, as a really cool example, one of the coolest things I ever found from analyzing population tendencies in my database was um, it turns out, and these heads up sit and goes, um, they start out around 25 big blinds deep. And it turns out that if I look at the average percent of time that people limp, it's like 18%. But if I look at how many, what percent of the population limps between 10 and 30% of the time, so like sort of around that, you know, 18 plus or minus 10, it -hmm. turns out that only 10% of the population plays those frequencies. Instead, about 40% play, um, uh, play. Uh, sorry, I think it's 40% um, limp like 50, 60% of the time, and 50% min- uh, limp almost zero deep stack. Wow. Huh. And there's this like separation in the population. And from using a little bit of Bayesian math, you can very quickly, if you just have like three hands, you can immediately separate the person from whether they're a limper or a min raiser deep stack. And the fascinating thing is if I filter then for players who are specifically min-raisers or specifically limpers, that is, they limp more than average or less than average, or, you know, in that kind of bubble, like 0 to 10 or, you know, 30 to 50, um, 30 to 100, um, it turns out that they play differently out of position. Um, so getting reads on their in-position game gives us reads on out of position. And it turns out that those guys who don't limp deep stack tend to be more kind of tags. They'll um, play tighter versus min raises, and they'll three that more. And they'll also ISO a little bit more. On the other hand, the guys who limp deep stack tend to be a little bit more like loose passive players. They'll tend to call more to min raises. They'll play a wider range, and they'll three bet less. And they'll ISO less as well. And so immediately, I get, you know, just from getting little reads, little micro reads on their deep stack play, whether they limp or min raise, I immediately can put them in a subpopulation and say, these are min raisers, these are limpers. And I can immediately make small adjustments to my range and decide, you know, especially with the bottom of my range, I'll decide do I want to min-raise bluff my 7-2 off or do I want to limp it and stab post? Versus a passive player, I like limping because they're not folding to my min-raises as much and they don't ISO. So I get to play post and stab post. Um, Or, you know, I'll min-raise versus the guy who just three bets or folds. Chances are he's going to fold way too much. And so I can just min-raise my 7-2 off versus that guy. And so very quickly you can get these kind of reads. Um, and so I found, you know, in the tournament play, it was very, very similar. You know, I had to figure out the population tendencies. Unfortunately, it took me, um, uh, it took me basically the whole World Series <laughs> to figure out the population <laughs> So, yeah, I'll be ready next year. Um, but, you know, figuring out a little bit of population tendencies, how do different types of players play in different spots, um, and then trying to figure out, you know, how can I type those players? What's the quickest way for me to figure out, you know, what type of player this is? And then you can get reads, you know, and then you get exploitive strategies that you can exploit. You know, you get their strategy and then you can work on exploiting it. And so, um, you know, and so that's why I found a lot of time in tournament play. Um, it's sort of a combination of having a solid readless strategy that exploits the population tendencies combined with sort of narrowing things down and figuring out, you know, who's a reg, how do regs play on average, who's, you know, who's a tight passive player, who's a loose passive player, and trying to adapt as quickly as you can once you get that information and, you know, mm-hmm. make it, you know, and, and make the right plays versus the right types of players. Um, there's a lot of work. I found it to be, you know, really, um, really draining, um, you know, 
the a huge amount of focus needed to get you know all this information because there's so many players, there's so much information at the table, um, and it's so easy to kind of zone out and just ignore what's mm-hmm. happening. But by watching you know all the hands that people play against each other, not even against you, you can really quickly get ideas of how people play, of how they construct their ranges you know, what they consider to be good poker, especially if they start talking. I mean, then you're just in gold land, right? Um, mm-hmm. Once they start telling you about how you should play the hand, you're like, yes, I now know how he thinks I should have played the hand. <laughs> right. And that's probably how he's going to play the hand. So th- yeah. there's a lot of room to pick up reads really quickly um, and a lot of room to really understand population tendencies. Um, like one of the things I found was that people were barreling turns very rarely, um, especially the weaker players would almost not barrel turns at all. Um, and that, you know, that gives us a lot of strategic information. Um, it also meant I, I realized I was barreling a little too much with value because people were giving turn barrels a ton of credit because most people don't barrel turn almost at all. Um, and so it, it sort of, you know, adjusts a lot how you play. Um, on the other hand, there were some, you know, there's like one reg who joined the table at some point and he was barreling the turn a lot. And, you know, you could tell he was exploiting these people, folding too much on the turn and barreling turn a lot, but then shutting down on river. He had a really aggressive image. And so he would barrel a lot like flop and turn, but then you wouldn't bluff rivers. You just value bet. And people call him up light because they expected him to be really aggressive. You know, he bet he three bet a lot. He was betting flops a lot. He was betting turns a lot. So obviously he's going to be betting river a lot. And I didn't see him bluff once. I think he was just mm-hmm. entirely value heavy on the rivers, only value betting. Um, because, I mean, if you've got that kind of image, why would you bluff? Um, right. You know, okay. once your opponents have called the turn, their range is pretty strong too. They've decided to make a stand. Um, that's the spot where people usually decide, you know, they fold the lot or they call and they call river. And so, you know, you can make these kind of strategies. And, I, you know, I, I sort of recognize, wow, that's a really good strategy. I can see why he's doing well and why he's a successful live MTT player um, with this strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, despite, yeah, I think, yeah. some of the preflop stuff he was doing wasn't great. But, uh, but yeah, so, so there's a lot of room to try, try to build strategies based on population tendencies and how you think on average people yeah. play. What are the common leaks you see? What are the common misplays? Absolutely. I think uh, it's funny you mentioned that idea of, of players adapting and, and just sort of not bluffing in big pots there. Because I remember reading something recently, um, uh, an interview with, I think it was Fedor Holtz, who, who went really deep in the main event this year, who's been just crushing MTT the last year or two. And um, he, he made a, a, an interesting point, which is, you know, he... He's known as being one of the most aggressive players in MTTs online, and he he obviously also has a really aggro image when he plays live. But he you know he he always points out sort of jokingly that like whenever there's a big pot, he always ends up having it because he's not dumb enough to get himself in a spot in a big pot where he's got a super aggro image and he doesn't have it and he's making a big bluff because he knows people aren't going to fold to his big bluffs. You know? So it just becomes a really good strategy for him to develop that aggro image by like. Yeah. you know, three bet pre, fire, flop, and turn, and then when he fires the river, he just has it, and he gets paid, you know, so it's like, yeah. it starts to become really obvious how you develop those strategies after a while, because if you're exploiting people's um, impression of you, and if you're able to exploit their impression of you in that way, then, like, that's that's so valuable, and, and anybody who's who's good enough to get to the point where they can play aggressively and, and, and exploit people like that is probably not going to be going overboard to the point where they're just firing three barrels every time and just, you know, punting off chips, you know. So that's the that's the difference between the guys who play aggressively and, and really make it work for them or, between, or, or the guys who, you know, play super aggro but don't quite actually, you know, they don't quite actually pull it off because, you know, the, yeah. the guys who make it work are the guys who always tend to have it when they play the big pots. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's worth noting that that's still exploitable. Like, I mean, that strategy mm-hmm. of firing flop and turn and shutting down river – 
makes calling flop and turn and folding river really good. Right? right. I'm super happy to call flop turn and just fold river with all my bluff catchers in a sense. Mm-hmm. And and suddenly my bluff catchers do awesome because I always get to show down versus his missed hands and mm-hmm. win. And I never pay off on the river his big hands because he's always got it. Right. And so, so I mean, the, it's really that these kind of strategies get exploited too. And yeah. Um, but but again, I mean, the level of play. I mean, it's going to take a really strong player to do that, and that strong player has to have reads on you. And so right. it could and be then like, he he has the added advantage as well that people are going to be less less inclined to call the turn uh, against him because they're going to fear that they're going to face a big river barrel, you know, and people that aren't able to identify that he's not actually firing the river when he doesn't have it um, are, are going to be, you know, folding the turn more often to him because they fear that future aggression. So he actually gets more turn folds as a result. So it's like... He, Which plays into a strategy even more. Yeah. Because that's it's, where he um, wants the most folds is on the turn because that's where he's bluffing. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting to be able to talk to to someone like yourself who has that understanding of just overall the strategic perspective rather than MTTs where we we often get so caught up trying to exploit people that we lose sight of yeah. you know how often should we be doing a certain thing and then what's you know what's the the sort of macro perspective on this so it's it's certainly yeah. interesting to to talk to someone with back on that. You know, you get caught up in the one hand where you you know call flop with a pair and then you face a turn barrel and you're trying to figure out what to do and. You're, you get caught up in that kind of situations where, you know, the EVs actually tend to be pretty close. Like, you get caught up in a yeah. spot where, you know, you've got some hands and bluff catcher versus a uh, you know, polarized range, and you start thinking a lot, oh, was that a bad call? Is that a bad fold? Well, it's probably not that big a deal compared mm-hmm. to, well, how are you playing your range in all those spots? Right. Like, you know, what are you doing with the rest of your hands? Um, how are you making money from a strategy? You know, where's your money coming from? I mean, it's always yeah, exactly. it's always important to ask yourself that, you know, when you're playing against other players. Like, do I know where my edge is coming from? Do I have mm-hmm. an edge? And if so, I should know where it's coming from. Like, what places? You know, am I making money because people are playing too loose pre-flop? Am I making money because people are, you know, using wrong sizes post-flop? Am I making money because people are, you know, spew, spewing post or super nitty post or whatever? Um, you know, always trying to figure out where your edge up comes from. Not just, you know, because it's so easy sometimes just to be kind of, um, you know, oh, that guy's just terrible. He's just bad. You know, it's just a crazy fish at the table. I'm just going to make money off, off him. Um, but it's, it's easy to sort of say, you know, a person's worse than me and I'm going to make money from him. It's a lot easier to say that than oh, this person makes these mistakes and I'm going to exploit him by making these, you know, adjustments to my strategy and that's how I'm going to make money from him. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, that certainly, certainly seems like that there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of people out there who probably have been, you know, studying MTTs for, for some time. Obviously, you know, we're we're mostly aimed at, uh, you know, the TPE membership, and and of course the TPE membership are all guys who are out there trying to improve in MTTs. And I think people get very um, people get very caught up about specific instances in MTTs. I think because it's partially because it's very difficult to put in a lot of volume in MTTs. So it's very difficult to actually think about things in terms of, you know, if this hand were to happen a thousand times, how would I be playing it overall? You know, how would I be playing it long term? People tend to get very caught up and be somewhat results orientated in the short term and think, well, what should I do in this particular hand? And and how one, can I um, not gun broke? Right, exactly. And what, <laughs> yeah. uh, what one thing that I really um, that I heard quite early on in my poker career, which I think definitely stuck with me, was the idea that uh, you know when you go onto a poker forum and you see a hand where it's a really interesting river decision and and like everybody's sort of on the fence about what sort of play is correct, whether it's check call or whatever, and like ten people are saying. Uh, check call, 10 people are saying check fold. Those ones, you know, 
the the spots where like it could go either way those are the ones which actually which actually the ev probably isn't that like that great either way like it's probably like slightly minus or slightly plus so you know in, yeah. the, in those in those instances those are the hands that are actually not worth discussing that much it's the ones where you can make a ton of chips that you don't see that's the one you want to be looking at you know so yeah it's the spots where you're trying to think about your value cutoffs and right uh, think about you know where you're bluffing or where you're not in the hands and you know what your yeah i mean what your sort of range looks like in those places um yeah it's, it's more important in those kind of places to think well okay i've got this bluff catcher here but what am i do i have traps you know how often am i trapping here how much of a problem is it that i fold a lot of bluff catchers here if i'm trapping a lot it's not a problem um you know how much does my opponent start out the hand with bluffs um mm-hmm. i mean i find a lot of players who especially you know sometimes you can use this kind of gto thinking and get yourself into problems because there'll be, I'll see guys who will, you know, call the river with some, like, pair, and I'll be like, well, you know, you, you should just be folding here. And he's like, well, you know, but this is the top of my range. This mm-hmm. is the best hand, because I'm pretty capped here, and so I've just got to call it off. And it's like, well, no, because your opponent has no bluffs. Um, the right. way they play the hand, he just starts out the hand with, with basically no hands that can bluff you. And so if you're not getting bluffed, why are you calling? You can fold your whole range. In fact, it's GTO. If your opponent only has hands that beat you on the river, right. you should be folding your whole range. Exactly. The equilibrium is going to settle at opponent yeah. bets 100% and you fold 100%. And you fold 100%. And that's absolutely yeah. fine. There's nothing wrong right. with that. There's nothing mm-hmm. exploitable. Uh, your starting range maybe is a little exploitable. You can think about how your turn play, how you might want to adjust your turn play to get into a spot where you know you adjust that. Or maybe it's fine. I mean, if you're really polar on the river... Um, it might be that your out-of-position strategy is to bet all your value and some bluffs and check-fold the rest of your bluffs. And that's fine, too. You don't have to call mm-hmm. the top of your you know, check-fold range if you're just check-folding air. That's not a problem. Your opponent's just bluffing with bluff catchers if they bet. Most likely, they're just value-betting traps, and you just mm-hmm. fold and whatever. Um, so yeah, there's a ton of solutions and situations where you're not supposed to call the top of your range. And mm-hmm. so it's often easy just to kind of think, oh, you know, I got a call sometimes here. I got a bluff catch. Well, no, not necessarily. And there's so yeah. many places where you can get away with never bluff catching. Um, I mean, just like there's a lot of situations where you can get away with bluff catching, like, really wide if you have good enough reads and, you know, you, you understand what range villain comes to the hand with. And if it's one of those places where, well, he actually get, doesn't have any value hands or he has very few value hands in a spot, um, but he bets a lot, you know, I get to call pretty wide. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of... Um, you know, recognizing those kind of places and making the right adjustments. Because, yeah, it's, it's easy just to say, you know, I got a call because I got a pair. Or I can't fold here. It's like, yeah. well, I couldn't fold. I was committed. Well, really? You have no fold button? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel, like, uh, I feel like there's a bunch of people at NTTs who seem to play without a fold button sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's definitely, you know, there, there's some confusion people have as well about the idea of, like, being pot committed and being priced yeah. in and things. You know, you yeah. see people like, you see people bet the river as a bluff with like, you know, some some sort of middle pair hand, and you're like, I don't know where you're, whether you're bluffing or value betting here, but then the guy shoved on you, and you decided because you were getting three to one, you have to call even though he always has the nuts yeah. when he does that. I don't really yeah. get what he's doing here. Like, yeah, it, it's kind of silly sometimes. So I think the people people need to be a com- people need to be comfortable with the idea of folding, getting like four to one or five to one or whatever, if the opponent always has the nuts. You know, I think it's it's a it's a funny thing that people don't seem to be able to do. Yeah. 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 And force them to start bluffing you. Are they really going to bluff you when you've only got like you know X chips left? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that's it's certainly you know like I say it's very interesting to talk to someone who has this 
macro perspective on poker. So I think there's probably a lot of a lot of guys out there, a lot of PP members who could probably learn a lot from that. So um, I guess we're we're probably getting to the point now where we'll have to wrap this up fairly soon. But um, I do want to talk a little bit about um, just sort of where your where your poker sort of plans and where your poker life is headed at the moment, just because it's kind of interesting to you know to have someone who who's obviously back in the states at the moment, um, just working as a coach and and not really grinding too much. So uh, I don't know if you have any do you have any plans to move again and get back on the grind, or are you just sort of content no. with this coaching life? Yeah, I, I don't really plan to. Um, there's still a couple of U.S. sites, you know, U.S. leading sites that I play on. There's like Bovada and uh, Blackchip. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw on Blackchip, uh, even like score one one MTT on Blackchip not that long ago, and um, and I, I'm going to be playing on Bovada soon. So there's you know there, there's still sites to play on. Um, so I'm not super. Uh, yeah, I'm not planning on on getting back into sort of the online grind. Um, hopefully, anytime soon. Uh, I, I plan to play. More empty, more like live stuff. I really, um, after being in Vegas for that time, I really enjoyed it and really found um, a lot of uh, a lot of fun. So I'm I'm likely to fly down to Berlin for the uh, World Series of Poker Europe and try. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Cool. So, um, so I definitely want to get more into live MTTs. Um, I've been sort of doing, again, I mean, a lot of what I've been doing recently is sort of branching out into. Um, you know, spinning goes, and and then from there, it's you know, once I've started learning three-handed, it's it's not so hard to learn six-handed and nine-handed and stuff like that. So I've sort of been branching out from heads up, using sort of my heads up background to get, you know, to have a really strong starting point in a lot of um, other formats. So I've been kind of branching out along with that. Mostly it's coaching. Um, uh, I've got some other projects down the line. I've got some more, um, you know, software maybe I'll put out. I've got like a spin and go hot I'm going to put out and. Um, another video pack. I've got a video pack on spinning goes right now. Um, it's out on hosng.com. Uh, math and heads up spin and goes spinning video pack. But I plan to do a heads up one. Um, and I'll probably, I, my goal is to make it sort of um, more like a universal heads up pack, not like heads up sit and goes, but universal heads up tournament pack. Um, okay. So look at, you know, so, so for players who, you know, play MTTs, they can um, get, get the pa- video pack and, um, you know, brush up on their heads up play. Because I mean, there's mm-hmm. so much, so much money to be had playing good heads up and MTTs. Because so much prize pool is at the end. I mean, you're yeah. double or nothing almost. <laughs> Not double or nothing, yeah. but you're you're playing for huge sums in the heads up portion. Um, and, and I found that MTT heads up players and all the times I've seen them are really bad. <laughs> uh, no offense to you guys, of course, but uh, no, but just, I can attest to that. Practice. I mean, it's just one of those things that you don't practice. Um, yeah. Because yeah. you don't get in that spot very often, and so when you get into it, you just kind of play on what you think is good, and a lot of the times, what you think is good probably isn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we talked to we talked to Jamie Wilby, uh, obviously I wanted another MTT pro uh, a while back on this podcast, and he talked about the importance of putting in a certain number of reps in certain posi- in certain situations. You know, like the idea of being able to play a certain post flop spot a hundred, a hundred and fifty, two hundred times in a, even a, a week or two, rather than you know. Uh, having to wait a long time before you see it again and that definitely extends the heads up play because most people just haven't really in mtts like it takes a long time before you even get heads up in an mtt for the first time in your mtt career let alone let alone being able to do it 150 200 times and and actually get a sample of of how you play heads up you know i've seen samples of people out there who send me databases for coaching and they you know they played maybe 20,000 hands heads up in their entire life and that's like it's not even really enough of a sample to know anything about your own heads up game, let alone how, you know, how much of a winner you are, 
anything like that. And I think it's like it, people just don't have much experience at all. So, so I think a heads up pack for MTT players certainly would be uh, something yeah. that a lot of guys would be interested in. Yeah. So, so I got a few projects like that. Um, the other thing uh, we're I'm doing I'm organizing like a little boot camp um, mm-hmm. here in in Colorado. It's gonna be out in the mountains. So organizing sort of sort of like a poker retreat where people can come and I'll do um, uh, seminars. There'll be some private coaching offered too, um, as well as just kind of an atmosphere of, of sort of learning where you can learn from other players, talk about spots while having fun, you know, drinking beer, playing poker, um, you know, playing cash games, playing other games, uh, hanging out by the, by the fire or in the hot tub. Um, so, so, cool. so I've been looking into doing some more of that stuff. Um, so That's I really, awesome. especially, going to Vegas and sort of meeting up with people. I mean, there's so much, um, I mean, it's so great to actually meet people in real life and sort of talk to them, you know, in person. And, and I think it's so, so much easier for building connections, for building, um, you know, for, for sort of networking, but just for, you know, making poker friends. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that there's so much value. I mean, that's another thing, um, kind of like what I was talking about when I was starting up in poker, the stuff I regret, you know, not game selecting, not managing my sessions well, all that stuff. I could have made so much more money. Um, another one is not networking enough, you know, not making enough poker friends, not talking about poker with other people enough, um, you know, not, not building those kind of connections. Uh, and I really think that held me back. And, and it hold, holds you back in a lot of ways. I mean, it holds you back strategically, but also holds you back in a macro way. I mean, in the end, you know, you're more likely, you know, if, if you have more friends in the poker world, you're more likely to get in more positive spots. Like if you need a stake, you're more likely to get a stake. If you mm. are, you know, in an MTT and, and you've got, you know, another reg that you know at the table, you're more likely to know what to do against them. You're more likely that both of you will kind of play a little bit nice against each other <laughs> and make money off everyone else. Um, and so all those spots, like you don't really think of it in game, but they add up. And all those kind of things, the little stuff that we do outside the tables is vastly important. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to host it. Um, it's going to be really cool. I mean, the house we found is just amazing. It's this, like, huge house, eight bedrooms. Um, so we're going to be hosting around, like, 10 to maybe 10, 12 people. So it won't be, like, huge. Uh, two week, Yeah, it's going to be, like, two sessions. So it'll be two sets of 10 people and uh, going to be looking at, yeah, doing a lot of kind of stuff. Um, there's also so much stuff to do out here in Colorado in the mountains. Um, there's so many, like, cool things to see, little mountain towns and breweries and um, yeah, and on, on top of that, um, it's Colorado, and uh, I don't know who knows, but in Colorado, pot's legal. So, uh, so <laughs> all, the, all the all those uh, all those poker guys who love to toke every day here, he got the uh, the best pot in probably in the world right now. That sounds like the, the best legal. place to have a poker meetup. You know, if yeah. you want to get a group of poker players together, you might as well do it somewhere where pot's legal. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, everyone has different interests. You know, again, there's lots mm-hmm. of there's amazing. I mean, some of the best beer in the world is here too. There's been so many craft breweries opening up. Um, I mean, there, there's, you know, obviously good wine and, and there's just great, like, you know, atmosphere too. I mean, the hiking, I mean, just the outdoor stuff, it, it's right in the middle of the mountains. So it's a beautiful spot, you know, beautiful hiking spots, um, water sports, um, all that kind of fun stuff too. Um, so lots of excursions to go on. Uh, so yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. And so, yeah, I'm mostly going to be doing those kind of projects and, and just, you know, keep coaching and, uh, keep studying. <laughs> uh, keep ahead of the game. Absolutely. Well, on the networking front, you know, we'll have to make sure that next year, next year at the World Series, you'll be coming back again. We have a little bit of a TP heads up sit and go dot com meet up. You know, I'm that's sure awesome. we'll have to, have to yeah. hang up and have a couple of beers. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, I think that's pretty much it for now. Unless you have any other topics you wanted to bring up. No, I think that sounds good. 
Sounds good. All, All right. right. Cool. Well, uh, well, for uh, for everybody out there listening, you can you can follow Adam on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, it is at Coffee correct? No, at Coffee uh, Poker. That's right, at Coffee Poker, and I'll put a link to that uh, in the notes down below yeah, this can, podcast. Yeah, my website's um, www.coffee.com, so that's easy. And that actually links Perfect. you straight to my page on hosng.com, which is the the best site for any sort of heads up and spin and go stuff. Um, we've got the best best material always, best video packs, lots of free content, free articles, free videos, um, just tons of information on, on playing heads up, uh, especially, you know, and again, I mean, a lot of the heads up sit and go stuff, I think is much more relevant to MTG players than heads up cash because you deal yeah. with stuff like win rate maxing and uh, short stack play and dealing with different stack depths and, and all that kind of stuff. So, Right. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so yeah, so people can check that out. Uh, again, I'll link that down uh, below this podcast as well. And is is that where people can find out about you know if somebody listening is happens to be interested in the retreat, they can find out there as well. Uh, yes, yes, soon. Yeah, um, hopefully within a week or two. Um, we're just finalizing getting the, the sort of page up and stuff. But yeah, absolutely, that's going to be very cool. Nice yeah, so so stay tuned to that. And uh, and again, uh, follow Adam on Twitter. You can see how he's doing. Uh, with his coaching and also any live events he plays and stuff like that. And uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening. Uh, We're happy to be back, and we'll be back uh, next month with another episode. So thanks, and we'll catch you guys next time on Mid-Stakes Living. Thanks again, guys. Bye-bye. Cheers. At this altitude, it clears your head and sets your spirit straight. The Rockies stand like sentinels, keeping watch over us animals, both small and great. Maybe pick a wildflower in a sunny field Or catch a can of corn at Coors Field Hello, Denver, Colorado Your mountain air makes me feel like I can fly Hello, Denver, Colorado Your green hills and your blue sky Keep me coming around, round, 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 and keep me coming around. Let's go to the Denver Museum, or you're always welcome in the Civic Center Park. We can eat and drink, you know, over in. Lodo, where it's always hotter after dark. All the kids like to go to Invesco Field and play, pretending they are John Elway. Keep me coming around.